Hi everyone, and welcome to The Seed Podcast, part of our teaching ministry here at the Central Church in Fayette, Alabama. The Seed exists for one reason only, and that is to lift up the Word of God in order that Jesus Christ might be known and worshipped as King. We invite you to join us now as we dive in to today's message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who blesses you, who's blessed me more than we ever could bless ourselves. He's a good, good God. Every single Sunday, I mean, that's just so important for me to echo the words of Paul over and over again. We have grace here. We have the gift of God here. We have his presence here. We have his peace here. It, it, it envelops our lives. It colors everything that we are because he has been so good to us. I think just like all historical moments will eventually pass from history, and we won't feel them anymore, 586 B.C. is not really anything that we talk about anymore. It's long passed out of our cultural memory. Yeah, we, you might have heard the number before. Sometimes we study it. Sometimes we try to understand what it means for biblical history and theology, but, but we won't feel it. If I say September 11th, 2001, you feel that. When I say 586 B.C., I might say, well, I read about that. I don't feel it anymore. But I can assure you, you can count on your fingers the number of moments as big as this one. Probably less than your fingers. This is one of the moments that rocked history, that rocked the people of God, that rocked the world of the Bible. And... I want to talk about it for just a moment. The, the, the people of Israel had been in the promised land about 820 years. Round about at 586 B.C. They had been there about 800 years. Now, 820 years ago, King John was signing the Magna Carta. That, that's how long that is. I don't know how people lived 820 years ago, what they sounded like, how they talked, how they dressed and everything. It's long gone out of cultural memory. It fades. We don't feel it any longer. The kingdom of Israel had reigned from Jerusalem for about 400 years. And they had worshipped in the temple, Solomon's temple, for about 375 years. Again, 375 years ago, the Plymouth colony was younger than I am standing before you. It's a long time. Cultural memory has gone on. People don't feel it any longer. The point is... God's people had been in a world centered around the Jerusalem temple as long as they knew. It, it almost felt like it had always been that way. They read their history books. They knew it had not always been that way. But just like you feel like America's always been here the way it is today, that's the way they felt. 586, the entire world changed. The entire world changed. God's people were pushed out of their temple. Their temple was destroyed. They were pushed out of Jerusalem. They were pushed out of the land of Israel. They were scattered to the wind. It was a seismic shift in the world of God's people. It, it was almost like, imagine that every church in America right now was burning down to the ground and all the Christians were being scattered underground, captured or killed. That's what this was. But through it all, there was a promise. Through it all, there was a promise that came in the whispers and the calls of the prophet and distilled into this one wonderful, glorious, and mysterious word, Messiah. Messiah. 
Messiah is going to make all this right. Messiah is coming. Messiah will redeem. Messiah will restore. Messiah will bring us back to his holy hill, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. He will bring us back. And 70 years later, they went back. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they went back, reclaimed the holy hill. They built a second temple. Problem was, you can only imagine how they were feeling. Okay, we're being restored back to the land. We're being restored back to Jerusalem. We're being restored here in our house of worship. Messiah? It's time for the Messiah. Messiah didn't come. There was no Messiah in 516 B.C. And all of this is the context for what we're going to read today in the book of Malachi. Malachi comes on the scene trying to explain Israel, yes, you have your temple back, but this is why you don't have your God back. This is why you're back in the land, but you're not in good relationship with your God. And Malachi does. He points forward to the Messiah's coming, but he also points to a whole lot of work the Messiah has yet to do, that God's people have yet to be formed before the Messiah can come and redeem. I have not forgotten today, our text is actually Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. But I want to take you to Malachi 3 this morning as we talk about a very real, very prevalent form of stealing. Perhaps the root of all stealing, I truly believe this, that separated Israel from her God in that day, it's very relevant for us here today in our day. So Malachi 3, why don't you read with me starting in verse 7. The Lord says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, it's very strange in our concept of stealing and everything that we think entails stealing. We don't normally think of stealing as failing to give somebody something out of our own possessions. Like, if, if I keep what is mine and I don't give it to you, you can't really call that stealing. You might call it stingy, you might call it greedy, you might call it selfish, miserly, hoarding. You might call it a lot of things, but it's not stealing. I'm not taking anything from you. They said, how are we stealing from you? And God says, by holding back your tithes and offerings. And he says it's tied directly to the, the fact that I've not yet filled your temple. He says, if you would return to me, I would return to you. Back in, in the days of Solomon's temple, when Solomon finished building his temple and they dedicated the temple, I don't know if you remember this, the presence of the Lord came down and filled that temple. So thick, the, the, the glory of the Lord was so thick in that place, it drove the priests out. Nobody could stand in the temple as the presence of God filled the temple. Second temple hasn't been filled. Nothing like that happened in the second temple. No miracles to speak of, no Messiah, no presence. He says, if you would return to me, I would return to you. So, well, how can we return to you? Absolutely, we want you to come back. How could we return to you? He says, you've got to stop robbing me. That's why you're cursed. That's why you don't have my presence in your midst. That's why my blessing doesn't lay over you as it did in the days of Solomon. You are robbing me. You've got to stop robbing me. And here's the first important principle that we've got to learn 
this morning. Because again, th these people aren't going and lifting gold off the temple. Th these people aren't knocking over priests on their way home from temple. It's, it's not like that. How are we robbing you? You're not giving me that rightful portion of your possessions. That's what he says is robbing. That's what is stealing. You're not giving me that rightful portion of your possessions. And again, they might say, that's not stealing. How could that possibly be stealing? It's mine and I'm not giving it to you. Call me whatever else. But how am I stealing? The answer is that all possessions are first and foremost God's possessions. If you don't see it this way, it's not going to make any sense. But what he's saying is all possessions are mine. You're not stealing because you're failing to give me something of yours. You're stealing because you're not giving me back what is mine. I put it in your hands. It belongs to me. That's why it's stealing. You've taken it from my hand, but you haven't used it according to my command, in other words. Um, this time of year, I don't see the, well, some of them. This time of year, I send a lot of money to the concession stand. I think some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Yes, you do. A 20 here, a 10 here, and it's not for anything and everything. Like if they come back with 10 bags of M&Ms, no, it's for what I've okayed it to be for. You can get one bag of M&Ms and a Sprite and a hot dog, whatever. It's for what I okay it for, and then when you bring it back, I want the change. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. And it's not just that the change is my money. The whole 20 was my money. The money that went towards the hot dog and the M&Ms, and it's received gratefully. I've not had a kid yet come to me and think that the change belongs to them just because they're holding it. Okay, I'll give you my change back. No, I'm giving you your change back. And thank you for the hot dog and thank you for the Coke and whatnot. We, we get this principle. That's what God is saying here. God isn't just saying that the tithe and the offering belong to him. They do, particularly in a very special kind of way. But he's also implying that it all belonged to me. The money that I spend on my mortgage, the money that I spend on my groceries, the money that I, I spend on movie tickets, Auburn, Alabama tickets, whatever. That's all God's money. Thank you, God, for all of it. And I use it as a good steward of what is actually his and not mine. The root of stealing is this. Stealing is when I fail to honor the rightful owner of all things. That is stealing. When I fail to honor who it rightfully belongs to. And Malachi, Malachi points out that the most obvious symptom of this shows up in my tithes and offerings. All the money belongs to God. But I'm going to see it first in the tithes and offerings. That's where it shows up. It's, that's, just, that's not all though. If I were to look at this and to think, well, God is the victim in a robbery right here. He's, he's describing something where he's been knocked over and now he's suffered loss. His people have taken something from him. He has less. That would actually be wrong. That's not what he's saying here. Let's read on. Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. Not I'm being cursed. You are being cursed. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. 
Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will all be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So again, this is somewhat of a backwards view of stealing, at least backwards from what we're used to. Because in God's concept of stealing, the one who steals is actually the one who loses. The way we're used to it, if I steal from you, you lose. I gain. In God's concept of stealing, he says, you're stealing from me, and that's why you are under a curse. It's, it's like you took money out of my pocket, and then you turned around and realized you actually had less money than before you stole from me. You somehow mysteriously stole from yourself when you thought you were stealing from me. And the opposite is true as well. He says, bring the full tithe, and you'll have abundance. I will pour abundance on you. You'll have no lack. He said, I will rebuke the devourer for you. I love this image. I'll rebuke the devourer for I deal with the devourer. You deal with the devourer. It shows up in a hundred little bills. It shows up in inflation, job insecurity, surprise repairs. I got in my truck this morning. I noticed a sound that I didn't notice yesterday. Oh, great. There's the devourer. Now, that's not the devourer per se, that's just life. What's the devourer? The devourer is that sucking sound, that fear that pulls us, and it says, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough. Have you ever felt that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm going to have enough. It's that underlying fear, I'm not going to get through this because I'm not going to have enough. God says, you bring to me what is mine, I will rebuke the devourer for you. I'll rebuke it off of your life. It's not going to haunt you and torment you as it does for others. He says everyone who looks at you is going to testify that the promises of God are sure because they're going to look at you and they're going to say, that's blessed. That's blessed. There is a God taking care of that person. Might not even be my God. But whoever that child is worshiping, that's a good God. And they're going to testify to my goodness because they're going to call you blessed. So here's another important principle that we've got to grasp hold of. The, the first principle said that we honor the rightful owner of all things. The second principle says we believe, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that my possessions are better off in the rightful owner's hands. Better off than my hands. Like I don't just believe that I should give him my possessions because that's right and I should do that. I believe that when I do... He's going to do better things with my possessions than I would have done. Not just better for others, better for myself. Like, I believe that when I hold God's possessions back from him, I'm actually stealing out of my back pocket. He would have blessed me ten times as much as I'm going to bless myself. But when I give it to him, wow, when I hold it back from him, I'm just hurting me. I'm preventing the blessing from flowing and so I believe that it would have been better off in his hands. I hope we realize in all of this that God's insistence on our money has nothing to do with money. I hope we understand that we're just talking principles here. God isn't overly concerned with money itself. He's concerned with what money is a symptom of and what it says about our heart. Jeremiah 12, 2, God, you're near their mouth but far from their heart. That's what we're talking about this morning. Is God just in my mouth but not in my heart? He's concerned with the heart. This is a heart issue. Matthew chapter 22. 
Jesus was attacked by those who had God in their mouths but not in their hearts. They said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anybody's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Boy, they are buttering Jesus up. They are, you're the best. You're the best, Jesus. We know that you shoot it straight. What do you think then? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? Jesus, we got a question about money. Jesus, we got a question about faithfulness to God and how we use our money. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about this morning. Jesus was brilliant, though. It says in verse 18 that Jesus saw their malice. He looked straight into their hearts, and they knew where this was coming from. He knew exactly what they needed to hear. He says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Might do the same thing today. Pull something out of your wallet. Whose likeness is this? George Washington, Ben Franklin, if you're lucky. I mean, who's on your, that's what he was doing here. Come on, bring me a dollar bill. Who's, who's on this thing right here? Um, you may or may not know this. The reason that they had those money changers in the temple, who, who Jesus calls a den of thieves, by the way. That would be another fun lesson on stealing. But the reason that they were there was it was an abomination to pay the temple tax with the image of Caesar. So he says, bring me a denarius. Whose image is on that? They say Caesar's. He said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Caesar's image may be on the coin, but whose image is on you? George Washington's image may be on the dollar bill, but whose image is on you? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This was the question that Jesus was asking them. It's the question that Malachi was asking before him. It's the question that Christ is asking you today, whose image is on you? Who owns you? Who is your king? Who do you bow the knee to? Who do you listen to and obey his command? No matter what the command is, whose image is on you? I did not create myself. It's the image of Christ that rests on me. And so he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God the things that bear God's image. And they couldn't, wow. They just went away. Does he own you? By implication, does he own everything that he has put in your hands? Does he own everything in your bank accounts, everything in your possession? And when it comes to tithing, or when it comes to setting up your budget, or when it comes to any decision, will man rob God? Will man steal from God what has God's image on it? Will I steal myself back? From God, or will I honor the rightful owner of all things? If you would please pray with me. Father God, we, we worship you. We don't just worship you in song. We don't just worship you in prayer. We don't just worship you as we come to the communion table. We don't just worship you as we put our tithes in the plate. Father, we worship you with every decision, every dollar, every word, every act. Father, may our entire lives be worshipped because our entire selves belong to you. 
May we live an entire life of just turning over ourselves to the rightful owner of ourselves. Father, I pray that you would be working in our hearts right now, that we would not be thieves, that we would not steal or rob from you, knowing that it's not right, but even beyond that, we're robbing our own lives as we do so. Father, we want lives of joy, lives of your spirit breathing through us. We want Jesus' lives. And Father, we know that as we live Jesus' lives, the spirit of Jesus will go forward and his kingdom will be built up in this place. And instead of taking from the kingdom today for my benefit and my comfort today, we'll be building up with Jesus a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, that many sons and daughters will come to its light and they will find freedom in your kingdom. Father, we pray your kingdom come. Help us to be givers. Help us to be excited about building up the work of God. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. And now we pray together as a church family. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I have to tell you guys, I was, um, I was struck by something the other night at the, uh, at the bonfire. And I, I've been thinking some time for pulling together a lesson on the land. You know, the land is so important in the history of Israel is always talking about living long in the land and establishing in the land. And uh, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, when you go to a bonfire, you have a sense of the land, of, of my roots and where I grew up and, and the bonds that are so important to me. I think there's something there to talk about. But there's something that we sang that night, all for one and one for all. It's part of the alma mater. If it's, if it's true there, how much more true should it be here. And that's what this moment is all about. If anybody is here this morning in need of prayers, encouragement, the shoulder, the arm of your brother, your sister, anybody feels estranged from God, has any spiritual need whatsoever, all for one and one for all. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing? We thank you again for joining us this week at Central, and may the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified in your life today. Thank you.